CID Speaker Series podcast. This week, Frank Mucci, Program Assistant here at CID, will be interviewing Francisco Marquez Lara, a Venezuelan lawyer and political activist with the Voluntad Popular Party. Francisco was recently held as a political prisoner in Venezuela for four months. Throughout this time, he was detained in four facilities under three different organizations. During his talk, he shared the story of what he lived through and witnessed. Hi, Francisco. It's a pleasure to have you here. You were behind bars in Venezuela for four or five months in four different penitentiaries. Before I ask you about why you were captured or how you were captured, I want to ask you, what was going on in Venezuela at the time? What was the opposition trying to achieve? What was that political moment? Oh, well, thank you for having me here. Uh, and I think it's a great question to give some context to our audience. Uh, during that time, uh, right before uh, I was illegally detained, uh, the opposition coalition was taking part of this process uh, and trying to uh, start a recall election to revoke the mandate of Maduro. Uh, what we were doing is the Constitution asked for us to take several steps for this to happen, and one of them is recollecting a certain amount of signatures of the electorate to be able to make this uh, recall election viable. Uh, and that's what our Constitution asks of, of us to do, and the opposition coalition was making this happen. And so what I was doing is I was part of this process, and that's what led to, to my uh, illegal detention. So how were you actually captured? I mean, you are not a high-profile figure within the opposition. You're not a. You never ran for elected office. So, so why you? How did they get you? Uh, yes. Well, one one more thing I'd like to add is uh, everything that was being done with this recall recall election is was done within the backdrop of uh, economic, political, and social crisis. And I think that's also very relevant to to point out. Uh, and, and that furthermore, Venezuela is, is what I consider to be a, a competitive authoritarian regime. And that is now being called into question as well. Um, but what I think is important to, to signal out is what led to my arrest was me being asked by the opposition coalition to go to a very Tavisa state and oversee the, the recollection process. Now, this is not illegal. This is within the Constitution. I wasn't doing anything that could even be perceived as illegal. And what happened was I was stopped at a National Guard checkpoint. There was a routine procedure. And, and what happened was I, when the National Guards found I had a couple pamphlets within my car, um, that is what, in their mind, changed changed everything, changed the way they that they... They were perceived me at that point, and uh, they they took it as an opportunity to try to attack my boss, who was Mayor David Swanansky. And I think most people ask that question: Well, why you? Why why did they they do this to you? And I think that when they when they figured out who I work who I was working for, that I was a political activist in Voluntad Popular, which is an opposition party in in, in Venezuela, they saw it as sending a message to all those political operatives. Because during, during, my, during the time that I was arrested, I was chief of staff of, of Mayor Smolansky. And so you have to sort of take into account that the Venezuelan government many times, they'll choose certain people to send messages to the opposition. So for example, uh, Judge Afioni, when she was illegally detained and she was a political prisoner under Chavez, that was a message to the judges. Right? You know, if you get out of line, judges, this can happen to you. Uh, when they put Leopoldo in jail, they also said, well, you know, 
leaders, if you, if you really talk out against the government, if you talk about constitutional change, democratic values, this will happen to you. And so in my mind, when me being a political operative was a message to other political operatives who, you know, is saying basically, it doesn't matter if you're not a political figure or a known figure, you're still in danger, you're still subject to our political repressive system. And, and I think uh, that was a clear message after my arrest. Francisco, you're a lawyer, so you know how your case should have developed according to the law. You, you know what ought to have happened. Uh, was due process respected? Uh, did things happen as they should have happened? I think saying that due process, due process wasn't respected is, is such an understatement in my case, and, and, and I like to explain further to, to the audience. Uh, not, not only was when I was detained, I wasn't really explained what the charges were, why I was being detained. I didn't have access to a lawyer. I was, I was interrogated and, and threatened to be tortured by the, by the intelligence police in Venezuela. I mean, that, that was just the first 24 hours. But when you get into the process, I was four months detained. And after the first month and a half, the uh, judge threw out the charges. You know, there was a judge in Venezuela that told the prosecutor these charges should be dropped. The, the charges are annulled, and I was a month, I was still in jail at least almost two months before, uh, I mean, two, at least two months later after the charges were dropped or, or, or thrown out by a judge. And so you, you sort of ask yourself is, well, like I said, saying that the, the due process wasn't respected is an understatement because it is such a clear and flagrant violation of anybody's rights uh, that this would happen. And, and, and that was just another indication that this was clearly a, a political case. So just to be clear, uh it seems like they weren't even pretending to respect due process. Like, they just kind of did whatever they wanted. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that, and, and that's exactly right, Frank, because in Venezuela, there's not even a pretense anymore of a democracy. There's not even a pretense of due process or, or justice. I mean, that, that was my case. I'm just one case out of hundreds and, and thousands, and depending on, you know, uh, which cases you look at or, or how people were, were, were detained. Uh, you know, my, my example is one case, but I'll, I'll give you another example. Uh, just very recently, the government refused to uh, give the budget to, for Congress's approval. In, in most liberal democracies, it is routine and constitutional procedure for the executive branch to give the budget to Congress and Congress approve it by law. The, the executive branch refused to do this, and they gave it to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court accepted this process. So you have to sort of ask yourself, well, is that, is that a democracy where the judicial branch sort of validates this and the judicial branch validates this clearly unconstitutional act by the executive branch? And I, w I would like to repeat that because uh, this happened. You, can, you, know, you don't have to take my word for it. The, the President Maduro refused to give the, the budget to Congress for Congress's approval. And the Supreme Court validated this. And I think that is what you, what you said is exactly right. There's not even a pretense or a small pretense of respecting the Constitution or having democracy. I'd like to have a little bit of context of the region. You know, what you're describing in Venezuela almost sounds, you know, weirder than fiction. What's going on elsewhere in the region? You know, is this happening in Colombia? Is this happening in Chile? Is this happening in Ecuador, in Brazil, like, like how is Venezuela and, and, and the Venezuelan criminal justice system and the political prisoner situation in Venezuela different from the other countries, or is it more or less the same? Yeah, I think that it's a great question because 
many people in America will try to debate that, well, you know, every country violates human rights to some degree, or every country has a certain, doesn't have a perfect democracy. But in Venezuela, it's a matter both of openness and degree of what's going on. It is, I mean, I said, the, the example I just mentioned, you don't see that happening in Colombia or Ecuador or, or any other place. Um, it's also compounded by the fact of, of the economic crisis. So Venezuela has the worst economy in the world. Let me repeat that, the worst economy in the world. So you, you compound the political crisis with the economic crisis, and you have these really horrible things happening. Because, you know, not just the, the, the example I mentioned, but other examples, because, because of the, the, the sheer amount of political prisoners, it doesn't exist in other parts of the region. The, the torture, the systematic torture, you know, eyewitness tortures in, in jail. I personally saw prisoners being tortured. Uh, and to the degree that it was done in, in Venezuela, it is so systematic and so common, both for political and common prisons, prisoners, that it, it, it is by far the most egregious in the region. And that's sort of the thing that I really want to focus uh, moving forward, that I want to let the Western Hemisphere know that there is a government in the Western Hemisphere that systematically tortures. And that is something that we cannot accept uh, in Latin America. And that is something that we ne definitely need to raise your voice about in a, in a very constant and, uh, I would say, energetic way. What did that torture look like? What did you see? Was it physical? Was it psychological? A combination? How, how often? How arbitrary? How, what yes. was that like? So um, it, was, it was very often. Like I said, it was, it was systematic. So from the beginning, when you, when you get into jail, uh, the first thing they do is they, they try to dehumanize you. So, you know, the, 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 the way you're treated, you know, you're, you're stripped naked, you're photographed, you're videotaped. Uh, they, they, they put you in this, in this yellow uniform. They, they shave your head. They make you do uh, marching style, uh, sorry, military style marching. Uh, they make you say Chavez vive, which means Chavez, you know, long live Chavez basically is a, is a, is a introduction. And, and so the, the political component of what they're doing to you is, is very clear. And, and that's just, again, the, when you arrive uh, and, and you're immediately exposed to uh, constant beatings uh, and you, you, you present or you witness constant beatings of other prisoners. You hear their screams, you see when they're being beaten. Uh, I saw a man being tortured for 30 minutes and this was in broad daylight. Again, what you said, there was not, well, there's not even a pretense of respecting the human rights within, within prisons. And, and, and by the way, the, the warden himself, you know, the director of the prison was present uh, during these beatings and during these tortures. So it's something that comes from up top. You, you, you can't say the warden didn't know or, or you know, it's some, some local or, or isolated incident. Uh, it's there constantly. Uh, and, and I will give you another example. The warden himself, I saw him take a bat with a flat service and, and, and hit prisoners. I saw it with my own eyes. And so that, if that's the warden, you can imagine what other uh, guards will do within the prison. And so that, that's, that's the degree of what's happening in, in Venezuela. There's been other far more egregious instances of political prisoners being tortured. Uh, I'll give you two examples of the type of things that they do. Uh, one is they, they take a plastic bag over a prisoner's head and they suffocate him. And they do this for hours on end to, to wear him down. Uh, they, they, don't, they don't only just put a plastic bag on his head, they, they put insecticide inside that bag to, to suffocate the, the, the prisoner. And this was a political prisoner that was done to. Uh, another political prisoner, uh, Gilberto Soho is, is his name, because I know he's okay with me talking about it. Uh, he was hung by, by handcuffs to, to a, uh, a place that is above, on the, it's above the ground, so much so that he was basically just hanging by his shoulders. And to, to this day, he still 
you know, his shoulder's not the same. Uh, and this was done for at least 48 hours. Uh, so, you know, I could go on and on about different cases, but, but these are just some of the few. And it's not talked about both in Venezuela and in the region. And I think it's, it's our job, and we have an opportunity right now, to talk more about these cases, have better documentation, and, and bring it to, to different international uh, organisms. Why don't people in Venezuela talk about torture? I think there's a fear. I think there's a very clear fear that uh, if you talk about it, uh, you might be put in jail, or if you talk about it, something can happen to you. There is this atmosphere of political repression in Venezuela that affects all friends. And I think the Venezuelan government has made it very clear that if you uh, voice your opinion, if you're actively seeking change in Venezuela, you can be subject to arrest, torture, all sorts of economic pressures. And so that's, that applies, again, with speaking out about uh, torture. Uh, and you have to remember that uh, the Venezuelan government has acted in a way that has communicated to its citizens to saying, you know, we have no holds bar or we won't hold back when it comes to staying in power. And, and that's something that I know many political activists are aware of uh, and on political leaders as, as well. Francisco, I know you're here in the U.S. not by choice. The deal with the government, as I understand it, was that you would be freed only if you agreed to leave the United States, uh, leave to the United States. How does that make you feel? Yeah, well, what happened was, uh, during this process, I think the best way to think about it is more like a kidnap situation than, than a judicial process. Uh, you know, the, the government made it clear that it, I would not be freed unless I accepted to, to leave Venezuela. And so the, uh, um, it, it was very clear that upon my uh, release, I had to leave. Uh, and I, I left jail at 1.30 p.m., and by 6 p.m. I was on a plane. So it was that quick, uh, that difficult. Uh, it, it is perhaps um, sometimes even hard to explain what it's like to be forced out of your own country. And, and especially... After, you know, since 15 years I've been, I've been fighting for change and, and looking for democracy in, in, in my country. And, you know, that, that moment where you're on the plane and, and we, you know, Venezuelans, if you hear it, we, we know we have this mountain called the Avila. And, you know, seeing the Avila as you leave to, to the U.S. Was, was just a very uh, difficult image to, to process. Uh, I'm still processing it, obviously, but... Uh, but for me right now, I think the most important thing is to, to take the, this difficult process, to take all the things that I've lived throughout the four months in, in jail and, and turn around and try to both free more prisoners and try to affect change as best as possible uh, from the U.S. And I think the, uh, the leaders of the region have a big role in this, of you know, not accepting that there is this uh, torturing authoritarian regime in Latin America, and that is something that should have stayed in the past, and, and I think the region leaders can do, can do a lot of important work. You mentioned the word hostage and kidnapping. There's an ongoing negotiation process between the opposition and the government in which they have freed some political prisoners. Do you think that many of them are in a hostage situation, or, or, or does this resemble more kidnapping and hostages than actual... And what, what's going on there? That, that's exactly right in terms of this. Uh, a political prisoner is the hostage of the government. There's, 
there's really no other way of looking at it. The judicial process is so besides the point almost in it. And, and so the way it works is right now in Venezuela we're in this dialogue, and I, I say with quotation marks, uh, where the opposition has sat down with the government and try to see if some sort of agreements can, can, be, can be reached, and I'm very skeptical of this. Um, but what happens is within this process there's this hope that the, that the government will try to give a, an instance or, or try to take action to, to show goodwill within the dialogue process. And so they have released some prisoners, but not nearly enough. You know, when, you, when you have hundreds of political prisoners and you only release five or seven, release five or seven, there's still a, a long way to go. And it's not just releasing these prisoners, it's how they're released. In my case, you can't call it freedom when you're, when you're made to leave the country. In other cases, you can't call it freedom when, when other people, they actually don't allow them to leave the country. Uh, or you can't call it freedom when you have to constantly, every 15 days, go to a court to present yourself and you always have the sense that, well, they can put me back in jail at any, at any moment. So what type of freedoms are, are we talking about? It, it is a complete Russian roulette. It is it's completely unjust. Uh, and that's, that's the, the way it is, it is being handled right now. You know, these hostage negotiations uh, and being released, you know, little by little, while the vast majority of political prisoners re remain under these horrible uh, circumstances. So it almost sounds like a revolving door where, where, where some prisoners come in and are traded out. Exactly. Oh, horrible. Um, so you you have a degree from the Kennedy School, an MPP. Is that? That is correct. Yes, a Master in Public Policy. Two thousand twelve, I, I graduated. How, you know, how is the change of going from the classroom in Cambridge with these old wise professors into brutal reality in Venezuela? I think at first the it's uh, everybody who graduates from from a master's degree in, in public policy will will always have that that change. So there's that first change factor for everyone in terms of coming from academia to back to the the real rough and tumble world of, of politics. Uh, but in Venezuela, there's there's an added step that you come into it with this constant threat that there will either be imprisonment, that your livelihood is at stake, uh, or that the government will will pressure you in in other ways. Uh, and so coming back in 2012, we were very optimistic that we would win the election against Chavez. That didn't happen. And when Maduro ran for office against uh, another opposition candidate, Enrique Capriles, uh, you know, it's, that's when the crisis sort of really accentuated because that election was called into question, that, that result. And from then on, there's been just a heightening of the political crisis in Venezuela that has reached till this day. You know, I don't think it's a coincidence that since Maduro was elected, every year the, these political clashes come into play because the, the country just can't take this regime anymore. I mean, Maduro is so unpopular. You have to ask yourself why Maduro doesn't want the recall election, because he's clearly going to lose. And what the opposition wants is for the people to be able to freely and, and vote and, and express themselves. And, and so, again, your, your question was, how did I feel to have this transition? It was... It was both incredibly invigorating to face these challenges and come back to Venezuela and feel like I was, I was trying to do something for, for my country. But in the back of your mind, there's always this risk. And it's not a fictional risk. You know, it, and it, it ended up actually happening. Uh, and, and it's something that, um, you know, it's always in my mind. And, and I definitely want, moving forward, to do the, the best I can to, to make the government have a cost at every time 
they uh, they have they take on a new political prisoner. I still have friends that are in jail in Venezuela. I still have friends that are doing political work in Venezuela. And what we want to do as much as possible is to to make the government have some sort of political cost uh, in, in in what they're doing. And again, if if the regional leaders don't call out Venezuela on on this undemocratic uh, actions that they're taking, then then they might continue to do it. So is that what's, this is my last question, is that what's next for you, to, to do activism and raise awareness here in the United States? Is yes, uh, I, I think there's a lot of things that we can do from, from the U.S., definitely raise awareness, and not just, not just talk about it, but get uh, policymakers to understand the gravity of the situation and uh, take on different proposals uh, to, again, to stop uh, this regime from uh, jailing and torturing other people. Well, Francisco, uh, me and millions of Venezuelans are happy that you're free. We're happy to see you here healthy, and uh, we wish you the best of luck. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you for having me, and uh, uh, thanks, thanks again. If you want to learn more about CID and our events, please visit cid.harvard.edu.